Good afternoon and welcome to the Freedom to Buy podcast. I'm Joe Dworsky, the president of Retail Banking for Supernet, uh, which is the only payment network that provides true credit card payments uh, for the cannabis industry today. Each week on our podcast, we will take you behind the scenes of banking, finance, payments, and technology to help educate our listeners on how to make the most of your purchasing power in the world of credit. Today, my guest advises cannabis clients on a broad range of issues that affect the space, including mergers, acquisitions, loan structuring, funding mechanisms from venture capital, as well as private equity investment banking. Uh, He provides guidance on cannabis technology, manufacturing, transportation, and retail issues as well. Welcome, uh, the partner in charge of the National Cannabis and Hemp Practice at Armanino LLP, Mike Gorell. Thank you, Welcome, guys. For, uh, thank you for uh, inviting me to your show, Joe. Uh, pleasure, pleasure. And I hope I gave uh, enough of the overview of uh, what you focus on at the firm, but we can get into that in more detail uh, as we go along. Sure. I see that you went from Texas to California because you, you saw that cannabis was going to be significant and you made a shift you know what was the reasoning behind that yeah so early in my career what i was was a state local tax expert one point you know worked with kpmg and their washington national tax office and i uh helped companies figure out how to navigate all the different state taxes that are out there you know sales taxes excise taxes property taxes all of that and you know, I saw when Colorado became adult use legal, um, an opportunity that someone needed to be an expert from a cannabis tax perspective. And I saw that this was going to go state by state and this was not going to be federally legal anytime soon. So I left Texas, went to California right around 2015, you know, about a year before Prop 64 was passed in 2016. And then really, you know, things started taking off in 2017 there. And I helped work with some of the largest MSOs that are out there. You know, Cookies is one of my clients and they were just a single dispensary at the time. And then, you know, we've been together all these years and now there are, you know, more than 50 dispensaries across the country. Can you share your view on, you know, with the MSOs, some of the larger obstacles that they're encountering from a tax perspective, given that, you know, it's not approved on a federal level and how do they overcome that in today's environment? Yeah, unfortunately, no. Um, You know, when President Biden was elected uh, to office and the Democrats controlled the House and Senate, there was a lot of optimism that we would see federal legalization. Um, but we have not. And and unfortunately, I think, you know, Senator Schumer, uh, Senator Booker are, are adamant about having a robust, you know, comprehensive federal tax bill that would, you know, legalize cannabis, but also expunge records. It would do all these social equity programs and things that it, it just has everything in the kitchen sink in it. And, and unfortunately, even the Democrats can't agree on on some of those provisions. So 
I don't see anything changing anytime soon. And what that leaves us with, uh, particularly the MSOs, is the you know inability to be able to deduct you know their 280e expenses, and it just becomes so expensive um, to to run a cannabis business and. It's been very public that a lot of the MSOs are leaving the California market altogether just because the cost of doing business there is is so high and the regulations are so restrictive that it, it just doesn't make sense for them to be there and they're going to shift their time and attention to the East Coast. So there are other states that are more tax-friendly is what you're saying? They're not necessarily much more tax friendly. They're a little bit more tax friendly, but there's still, you know, significant high taxes on the market. What's the difference is is that in an established market like Colorado, California, Oregon, Washington State, you know, the price per pound of, of raw cannabis is is fairly low. I mean, there's just too many growers out there, too much product, uh, and and not enough product that can be sold within their state borders because without it being federally legal, you can't sell California cannabis, you know, outside of the state of California. I, I think that is, is is a real problem for these companies. And so they're going to markets that are more lucrative, where on the East Coast, uh, cannabis is is now, you know, 2000 a, a pound. And wh- how much is it on the uh, on the West Coast, did you say? On the West Coast, it's, it's around six, seven hundred dollars a pound. Wow, that's a big, uh, big spread, big differential. And and all these markets like California started at two thousand something a pound, and then they went down as as the market matured. The same thing will happen on the East Coast as well. It's just right now it's very new. There's not enough cultivation. A lot of the cultivation has to be done indoors because the climate, the East Coast, is not as good as the West Coast. So. It, it will take some time to have the um, product catch up with the demand here. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that's that's interesting. Interesting to hear that. In terms of a federal legalization, which obviously is not on the horizon based on what we're hearing and reading, and I was looking at one of the articles that you were quoted in, Emerging cannabis. What was this? Uh, this was the emerging cannabis market. Cloudy regulation, high potential, and and in the conclusion area, uh, basically, you were. Can you talk about your drawing conclusions on how you feel that this will go to legalization, uh, similar to uh, alcohol? Yeah, I think so because we've seen already that Constellation has made a major investment in cannabis. Other alcohol distributors are making investments in in cannabis because when you think about a the common consumer out there they have only so much available in 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 discretionary income to spend on alcohol tobacco cannabis and the more states that become legal that creates a, a, an environment where consumers will maybe pull back some of their spending on, on alcohol and increase their spending on, on cannabis. And when you have that kind of environment, then 
it's natural that the alcohol companies would want to get into this market because they already have the bonded warehouses. They already have the security, the distribution systems, everything necessary in order to take a brand national. And when we've seen this in, in the vodka wars where all these different vodka brands have, have come up over the years and have become national brands very quickly. And same thing with tequila. I don't see any difference in, in cannabis being the same sort of distribution network. And you feel that that will enhance the legitimacy uh, of the uh, market or does that not have an impact? I think you know, it does. I mean, as, as more states become legal, that is what's going to really create the legitimacy and it's not going to have the stigma that it once had. And, and alcohol, just like cannabis, can be abused. And so oh, if you use the product for medicinal purposes, for stress relief, you know, and, you know, occasionally to go out and get high and have fun, that's great and cool. Um, but like anything else, it can be abused. And so to the extent that people take the product, you know, derive a benefit from it that they can't get from uh, other drugs, uh, opioids and things that are that are highly addictive. Uh, cannabis is a great alternative. Yeah, that, I agree on that. I agree on that. And doing my research, I can definitely see the, the medicinal aspects and, and the benefits. Uh, but yourself, being a veteran, if you will, in, in this space, going back to 2015, which is not that long ago, but it's an emerging uh, market, as more of these states, I think we have 39 states currently that have some form of cannabis regulation, whether it's medicinal recreational or a combination of the two. So you've seen this market, you know, slowly mature since 2015. I, I would imagine that's in a positive way, the acceptance, if you will, because it seems like more and more states are putting it on the ballot and we're getting, you know, on each election cycle, uh, we're getting these referendums and they're getting passed. Um, do you continue to see that being the trend or do you see, you know, obstacles, you know, in the future because I've seen a lot of news articles also talking about the negatives. You know, you always have, you have some news articles that focus on negatives uh, of cannabis or with children or whatever the case may be. And I'm trying to understand if that's going to be an obstacle to getting uh, federal legislation and how that's impacted. I don't think so. In fact, I think what's going to happen is that all of these states need revenue, tax revenue, and cannabis is a great way to generate a lot of revenue quickly. In the state of Arizona, last year, I believe, they collected more taxes from cannabis than they did from alcohol and tobacco combined. That's a huge statistic. And, is when, other, yeah, and when other states see that, then now this tax on cannabis can fund their roads, their schools, their you know pension funds for police officers, whatever. There's just so many shortfalls in state coffers and local government's coffers to pay for all the things that they should be setting aside money for, but have it and kind of kick the can over the years. And now cannabis is is going to be their saving grace that can come in and 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 you know fill their 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 bank accounts with all this tax revenue. Unfortunately, they're just using such a high rate, you know, initially. And what they need to do is is tax it just like alcohol or tobacco. I mean, 
we don't ever go around talking about, hey, let's let's go around the block or I can get you a bottle of that tequila with no tax. No one cares about the tax on tequila. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a small amount. That's the way cannabis should be treated the same way. So that, yes. Well, how is it tax. treated? Well, how is it different now in, in these different states? Well, because like alcohol, you know, they don't, they're not subject to 280E, you know, so they get all of their deductions. The other thing is, is that the, the excise tax on alcohol is, is pennies, you know, whereas on, on cannabis is, is a percentage, uh, you know, I see. And, and so that's, it's, it's just a huge differential. I, I understand. So that being said, that's a good segue. Can you talk a little bit about 280E for our listeners and, you know, so we can understand a little bit more about that legislation? Yeah, 280E came out during the Reagan era. And when Nancy Reagan was, you know, on her, um, you know, campaign to, to stop the, you know, uh, have the, declare war on drugs, she you know, made it her mission to, to, to stop out, you know, cannabis use, uh, medical or recreational. She just didn't care for it and thought it was a, a gateway drug. And the legislature, the federal legislature eventually passed a, a, a tax law called 280E, section 280E of the IRS code. And it says that if you sell a schedule one drug, which Schedule one included heroin, cocaine, you know, all the bad stuff. And they included marijuana in that scheduling process. And that made cannabis an, an, a, um, a drug that could not take all of its deductions. So if you're in the business of selling cannabis, you can only take what is called your cost of goods sold as your only deduction, which is basically your cost to grow the product to harvest the product, product, uh, package it, and once it's packaged, that's it. You, you can't take any other deductions. So that means you can't take advertising deductions, you can't take marketing costs, you can't take other reasonable business expenses that other non-cannabis companies would normally take. And do you see that getting amended? Is there is there talk about uh, this being amended, I guess, or that has to happen when there's a federal legislation that it's you know legal there's been several bills that have come through they've gone through the house some of them have been passed by the house but it never gets to this u.s senate and it never gets voted on there and so it just stalls and dies out similar to the safe banking um proposals that have gone through the u.s house i think they passed it maybe seven times or something and it's never made it to the senate Although last week they did have a Senate hearing on uh, safe banking, which, you know, at, at least it's a step forward and hopefully maybe something will come out of that. Well, from your, your focus, you know, within your practice, you know, and this is great color on, you know, uh, how you help these MSOs and these different mar marijuana related businesses. Outside of the tax arena, what other areas uh, are you helping the cannabis-related businesses with? Well, there's a lot of M&A going on right now, and larger entities are, are, are picking up some of these smaller entities. And with that, we're helping both the buy side and the sell side of these transactions by making sure their books and records are, you know, 
up to date and, and 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 can be verified because if you have books and records that say we think we have this much in cash that's not a good indicator that <laughs> you know you're doing what right. you're supposed to be doing and and what we can do is go in and we can verify you know hey you've got $2 million worth of, uh, let's say, extraction equipment on your books. Well, we'll go out and, and physically take a look at it and see, do you really have $2 million worth or was it $2 million when you bought it, but now it's worth a million because you know it's been a few years and now there's better techniques, better machines. And so your $2 million machine is not worth $2 million anymore. And then, of course, affects the purchase price that a buyer is going to be taking a look at the other thing we help out is that there's a lot of food and beverage executives coming into the cannabis business. They're looking for data analytics to be able to, you know, tell in real time what's selling, what's not selling, what do I need to discount, what do I need to ramp up production on. We can put dashboards on their their computer and they can see things in real time to be able to make better business decisions because in this environment, you've got to be really efficient. You can't just kind of wing it uh, to be successful. Uh, that, that's definitely true. And especially in today's uh, environment, which is you know very, very challenging. That being said, in terms of the challenging environment, you know we hear it for private equity, venture capital. You're also involved on some level in terms of helping some of these companies raise capital. Is that correct? What we do is we help them get in a position so that investors can be confident about the numbers that they're looking at. So okay. when they're reviewing this company and deciding, hey, do I want to make a multi-million dollar investment? We can go in there and we can you know, look at those books and records and then give them assurances and say, yeah, you know, they, they really did have $20 million in sales last year. Okay. So you're going in and you're auditing the books and records, if you will. So yeah. someone who comes in and does the due diligence knows that it was done by, you know, a, a top top firm like yourself. Can you talk a little bit about the, the firm, you know, and uh, how, it, you know, I know you're a partner in charge of uh, the hemp practice and the, the national cannabis practice. Can you talk a little bit about the firm overall, just for our listeners? Sure. Um, Armandino is a national accounting firm, and we have about 30 plus offices across the country, about 3,000 employees, 550 million in revenue. So top, I want to say 18 in the country in terms of size. So we're one of the largest accounting firms um, in the country. And what makes us a little different in in our, particularly our cannabis practice, is that we offer everything to the cannabis industry that we offer other industry groups from the firm. So at that includes basic bookkeeping services. We have CFO advisory services. Right now, cash management is really a big hot topic right now, and we're helping a lot of companies manage the cash that they already have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do valuations. We do transfer pricing. So a lot of entities, like at the MSO level, will be selling from one related entity to another related entity, and you got to make sure that. You don't mark up the price, you know, artificially. It needs to be at a market-based price so that the IRS doesn't see, doesn't want you to be shifting income from one entity to another entity. So we do those types of studies. 
I wrote the treatise for Thomson Reuters on multi-state cannabis taxation. So we are very comfortable working in an MSO environment, and we do not only the federal and state income taxes, but we also dive deep into the local taxes and all those excise taxes that are very tedious to, to be able to file on a monthly basis. <laughs> then we have an audit team that does audits in the U.S. and in Canada because we have a few publicly traded um, Canadian companies as clients. And then finally, we have an IT consulting practice that uh, I was alluding to earlier that does all of the IT work and, and helps with tech stacks and making sure that the POS system ties with their financial reporting system with metrics, whatever. Wow, it's impressive. And you built, you started this practice when you joined the firm? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the firm was around since this. So the firm was around, but did you, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. start the, the cannabis hemp practice when you joined? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Exactly. So you, you built it up to a quite an impressive operation, it sounds like. It is. It's a national practice. And then I've moved from California to the New York area because I know that this is going to be where all the action's going to be in the next few years. Oh, so you're back on the East Coast now? Now I'm on the East Coast. Yeah. I'm okay. seeing you from New Jersey, actually. Oh, that's where I was uh, not from. Born and raised. I just moved down here about a, a year and a half ago. So, uh, okay, that's interesting. I didn't realize I, I was thinking I was talking to somebody in California today. <laughs> no. I, I, I saw that you went from Texas to California, <laughs> and I, then you went to Fort Lauderdale. So you've done a lot of traveling. Yeah, I have. I, I moved around quite a bit early in my career, uh, but now I'm I'm pretty settled on the East Coast, and really, you've enjoyed it very much. That's great. You know, you were you were alluding earlier in that last question about Thomson Reuters. Can you expand on the relationship uh, with Thomson Reuters and what you have uh, developed with them? I guess there's a, it's a book of some sort. Yeah. So years ago, they they came to me and they they wanted to put together some sort of treatise, uh, some sort of reference material so that practitioners would be able to know, hey, if I'm a cultivator in Oklahoma, you know, what sort of taxes do I need to be concerned about and pay attention to? And so we went through basically all of the states, whether it was medical or adult use, and this treatise gets updated basically monthly because as new states come on and rates change and, and everything like that. Uh, we work together to uh, book this this book together. And unfortunately, it's it's a virtual book because everything now is digital, you know, <laughs> the research world. And so you have to subscribe to their service in order to be able to have access to it. Uh, so unfortunately, you, you can't buy a copy and, and put yourself to sleep at night with it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you have to buy their whole service. You can't just subscribe to this. Yeah, you have to subscribe to, to Thomson Reuters service to, to be able to have access to it. part of the package. I got you. That's very interesting. Mike, an area that probably doesn't get talked about a lot, and maybe you can uh, enlighten our listeners, is the higher THC levels that I'm hearing about with some of these um, growers and how it's focused on a particular segment of the market, but they're not really addressing the female market. Can you talk a little bit about those two? Uh, it's kind of two questions in one, but the higher THC levels and and the female market and the opportunity for, with the female market. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I think that what's happening is that there's this race to higher and higher levels of THC. 
which really targets mainly males from the age of 21 to 35, 40 years old. And it's it's been going on for a, a couple of years now. And, and the THC levels now are getting so high that it's really not necessary to keep going higher and higher in these TAC levels. And I think what's happening is, is that the market is just trying to, you know, be able to say, Hey, we've got the highest dosage of THC in, in our flower or whatever. And, and they're really ignoring, you know, 50% of the market, which is women that are out there that may not want something with super high levels of THC. They may want something at a lower THC level, maybe something that is more medicinal, more relaxing, you know, maybe to help them sleep or something. And so there's just not enough women, I think, in the business. Uh, a lot of women uh, are not given the same sort of opportunities, I think, that other people are given. I, th I think a lot of these social equity uh, rules and things that states have come up with really help people of color, which is great, and people that have been incarcerated, which is also great. But they haven't really said anything about women that are also somewhat a minority in this this industry. And that's a very good point. Do you see um, in your practice with the MSOs or whether it, even if the single dispensaries, are you seeing, you know, now that you're back on the East Coast, uh, are you seeing an increase in women-owned dispensaries and, and marijuana-related businesses? I think there's, you know, more opportunity for them because they are, 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 you know, now they've been able to make use of the experience that people on the West Coast have seen over the years. And so there's more women, I think, getting into the market. But I think it's a very difficult road for them. And I think that they just don't get the same sort of attention that their male counterparts get. Interesting. But aren't the license, isn't the licensing process in some of these states more like a lottery type of system? Are you familiar with that? How it that is, works? Uh, it is somewhat like a lottery system, but in order to get into the lottery, you still have to have some basic financing, you know, set up to be able to be a, a worthy applicant, if you will. So the lottery isn't completely blind you know it's not like you fill out a one-page form and say hey hey i want to throw my hat in the ring and, and if i get it i get it if i don't i don't i mean there's still an application process that's pretty rigorous and and i think that it just makes it very difficult for women to be able to get through that whole process yeah, that's interesting well in terms of the the thc's level going back to the thc levels and how they're making them higher and higher and higher i mean i guess that's part of the issue with you know regulation. I was reading an article recently that there's some firm that is developing a breathalyzer for, you know, marijuana, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, you would figure you would eventually hear about that. Um, because, it, you know, I know that when I'm driving on the road, you know, I'm, I'm smelling, I'm smelling all over the place. When I lived up in, you know, New York and I was going back and forth in New Jersey and, and Manhattan going over the GW, you know, in the evening, it was yeah, crazy. I would be smelling skunks. I'm like, there's no skunks on the GW bridge, but you know, <laughs> you know what the smell is, <laughs> right? I would imagine more regulation would on the grower level would uh, control the level of the THC. Are you seeing anything? Any talk about that? I don't, you know, and 
unfortunately, I think you know people are, are producing product that that sells, and then right at this point, everybody wants to get the highest THC level that they can get, and and it, I, I think they've kind of taking it, you know, too far. I mean, it, there's it's one thing to to use cannabis for you know relaxation, stress relief, and whatever. It's another thing where you're like get something that 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 totally affects you your ability to maybe move walk or, or, or yeah. and, and especially like you were saying you know if you're driving you know it cannabis affects people differently so mm-hmm. i could take a gummy or, or or smoke you know from a flower and the effect i have will be different than what you have and, and so i think it's going to be very difficult for anyone to come up with some sort of measure that would say okay your thc levels too high and and you can't drive now i it just doesn't work like alcohol does yeah they were saying in, in the article that i guess the thc in the body it it doesn't stay as viable for these tests as maybe alcohol it can disappear yeah. quickly from a measurable perspective but you can still be high exactly yeah, so I guess there's a yeah. lot more. It'd be interesting to see if, with what's happening with these THC levels, if that accelerates more regulation, or if it well. And ironically, in New York, the way they decided to do their taxing mechanism for cannabis is based on THC content. So if you have higher THC, that's a higher tax. Hmm. Which is, I think that just helps the state. Because as as more and more products come up with higher THC levels, they collect more tax revenue. But it also creates an environment where the testing labs could be, you know, given incentives to test the product at a lower THC, so that the company would pay lower, you know, taxes. the 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 customer would pay lower taxes on it, but then the customer would know that hey, I'm getting something that has a really high level of THC, and I thought I was buying something that was, you know, mediocre kind of THC level. Hmm. Yeah, there has to be more of a level playing field like the alcohol industry, right? Yep, exactly. So I guess that's going to take some time to, to flush out. Um, yeah. And um, I guess we'll hear more about that as, uh, you know, there's more visibility on, on this particular aspect uh, that we're discussing. Well, this has been great. I mean, this is very informative and, uh, you know, your practice is very, very interesting what you're doing at the firm and how you've built this practice from scratch and all the different areas that you reach into, you know, helping these different businesses in the, the cannabis industry. I really appreciate your time, you know, on the show, Mike. Uh, hopefully if you're down here in Florida or I'm back up in New York, we can, uh, you know, get together and meet face to face. But I want to thank you again for uh, joining us on today's show. And for our listeners, um, you can, you know, find our show, Freedom to Buy, presented by Supernet uh, on your local podcasts, uh, Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, and Cannabis Radio. Uh, you can learn more about our company if you visit supernet.ai. And we look forward to uh, our next episode and uh, welcome you back. And everybody have a great afternoon. Thank you. <laughs>